Hi everyone and welcome to the Interaction Lab podcast brought to you by City Interaction Lab and the Centre for Human Computer Interaction Design at City University of London. I'm Stuart Scott, Interaction Lab Manager and in this podcast I'll be speaking to experts in HCI and related fields from academia and industry in order to inform and inspire our listeners. Today we're speaking to Dr Tony Sampson, a reader in digital culture and communication at the University of East London. Tony's a researcher focusing on the areas of virality and contagion theory as they relate to social networks and other digital media. I was also lucky to have Tony as my undergraduate tutor and supervisor and the sociological spin he put on multimedia is what inspired me to enter UX. So thanks a lot for that and thanks for joining us today, Tony. Thanks, hi. Yeah, thanks a lot for joining. Um, Pleasure to speak to you at the moment and to kind of get your feedback on your work and what's happening in the world. Uh, Do you mind just introducing yourself for everyone? Okay, yeah. Uh, I'm Tony Sampson. Uh, I'm currently a reader uh, in digital culture and communications at the University of East London. I see in your notes you've written down something you knew of me as when I was a student. Um, I came back uh, to higher education quite late in the day, really. I was a mature student because before that I was a failure of a musician and played for lots of indie bands during a sort of uh, late 80s and, and 90s. So I know that amused you a lot at the time, Stuart. So. Yeah, yeah it, it was a very, um, it, it was an interesting thing. It kind of made you stand out against uh, everyone else in academia. Is the fact that you kind of had this uh, sort of indie rock past that we were well, all yeah. about. Great. I mean, yeah. So you, you were an indie rocker, but now you're currently, like you said, a reader. I mean, what does your current role involve? Well, okay, a reader is is kind of the uh, one below a professor, I suppose. Um, so my research remit is quite big. You know, I get to do quite a lot of research, get to write books, I get to do a lot of stuff around art, um, writing articles as well, journal articles. Uh, we have research projects that I'm involved in as well. I do a lot of community engagement, which is kind of sounds unrelated to my other kind of research, but it, but it isn't. Um, but also, you know, as, a, as an academic, I also have contact with undergraduate, postgraduate students. I uh, do quite a lot of PhD supervision now. So um, that's, that's pretty nice. much what I do. Yeah. And uh, so you mentioned you do research projects. I mean, what kind of projects do you have going on at the moment? Well, there's a, a, an effort to try and make as much impact in a local community as possible. A lot of this is going to change quite dramatically, particularly in the short term with COVID. Yeah. But uh, we've been working with uh, community groups in uh, the local area around, around UEL, um, particularly, you know, the Royal Docks. Uh, and we do a lot of stuff also in South East Essex in South End. So right. our, our main remit actually is to um, try and engage people who traditionally come from areas which have got low participation rates in AG. Uh, so a bit of a, an unusual sort of move for me in terms of my other research. But um, actually, I'm finding quite a lot of links between the two. And it, it must be nice to engage those that aren't normally included in, in HE and kind of getting them as part of the conversation. Well, yeah, absolutely. That's that's the idea. Yeah, you know, the, you know, because you went there, UEL was kind of plonked in the middle of a dock. It's a, <laughs> it's a big. Well, it's time from nineteen ninety nine. I think it started there. It's kind of like this big white moderns looking building, but it's you know, and in a lot of ways, become quite disconnected from its um, its its you know it, its local population. And in the last few years, that's been that's been changing. You know, we we've been definitely trying to reconnect it. To, um, to the people who live in that area. 
Yeah, I mean, basically, I grew up in Newham, which is the sure. UEL's area, and it's kind of, it was always like, oh, that's the local uni, and a part of your mind's like, I don't want to go to the local uni because you're missing out on the uni experience, but because I was a mature student, it wasn't only, you know, it's like the only choice, really, um, but I did find that it was kind of nice that it was bedded into the area because it felt, um, you know, it just, it just felt relevant, and it kind of, you know, uh, maybe it changed after I left, and it got a bit more... Sort of. Actually, probably probably that's the case. I mean, one of the main things that probably went wrong was they built a big gate around it. Oh, um, right. okay. Uh, which which didn't help, and a lot of the locals kind of felt that 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 had kind of you know disconnected it from the local environment. But uh, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, it probably was better when you were there, and it's it's better now. It's 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 the gates have come down, yeah. and um, you know it, there's efforts now for the university to get out there and make real real meaningful sort of contact with the communities. And I mean, I don't want to go off script too much, but I think where you're sitting is that sort of related to this as well. It's like a discourse centre or something. Well, no, I mean, I mean the Beecroft uh, uh, Art Gallery building in South End on Sea. Yeah, it, it is related. We do a lot of work with uh, an organisation here called the Cultural Engine. Oh, in right. fact, the research group we do all this work with is called the uh, Cultural Engine Research Group. Um, so it started. We started off doing stuff a lot in this area because uh, this part of Essex, South Essex, South East Essex has really low participation rates in HE. So we've been working quite a lot in that area. And uh, we've actually kind of branched out to move into East London, which seems ironic considering that's where I work. But um, it's just the way, way things have, have worked out. You know. Yeah, and to be fair, like um, the C2C is straight to West Ham and it's the DLR and you're up there, really. We're, so, we're connected. Yeah, 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 exactly. Cool. Um, and how long have you been in academia? Well, crikey, I, it, I saw that question. I, I'd probably say about 22 years. Wow. So, um, yeah, I, you know, you, you mentioned there every, any other institutions. I used to work, you know, here in South End, and I was part of the development of, and this is where you, you'll probably be interested, of the really early multimedia courses. All right. So we were talking probably as early as 1994. I mean, I'm sure someone will make a claim for earlier than that, but these were when the word multimedia started to sort of become a buzzword. And we worked with Greenwich and then Essex University. In fact, I've revalidated a degree down here uh, to be uh, part of Essex uh, University. Uh, actually, when I finished that, pretty much as I finished it, I left and went to UEL. So um, that's when you met me. <laughs> oh, right. So you, you were just fresh to UEL around that time? Or... Yeah. What, what, year did, what year did you come to UEL? Can you I remember? Think 2007, I think. Right, yeah, a little bit before that. I, I started in 2001 at UEL. So. Oh, right, yeah. Well, it's still yeah. sort of green. Yeah, um, similar. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, so that's cool. So you were you were in the early doors of multimedia, and uh, you've yeah. kind of gone from that sort of, uh, you know, interactive CD-ROMs and all that jazz. To God, kind of, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, social media and networks and God knows what. And, is, yep. you know, and apps and AI and God knows what's going on now. Yeah, a lot, um, a lot, a lot has changed. Yeah, um, and what's what inspired you to become an academic? You said you were sort of, you know, taming the outback and, you know, rocking and rolling around South End. So how did you go from that to the world of academia? <laughs> we we didn't just play in South End. We, we had quite a large following in Milton Keynes, actually. So, uh, oh, all right. <laughs> Good roundabout. <laughs> oh, yeah, and we played up in London a lot. In fact, we, we try not to be too much of a, a local band. But anyway, that's, that's another story. So, yeah. yeah, I was thinking about that. What what inspired me? I, I, I think two things. One One is rather strange. I think because I'd kind of run up on the uh, sort of run up a little bit, you know, without things to do after the band, I, I, you know, I started going to college courses and just dipping in and out and looking at see what was going on. 
And I went to one where someone was talking about the work of uh, this uh, guy called Michel Foucault. And uh, I become absolutely fascinated and probably a little bit obsessed by it. And I, I think looking back, I kind of thought, well, that's what I want to do. I want to read that. I want to talk about it. I want to talk about it with other people. And uh, really, that's what I felt then. And I pretty much consistently still feel that now, actually. Not just about Foucault, lots of other people, but uh, that's where it started. So what do you feel gripped you about Foucault? Oh, yeah. Actually, only after you mentioned the connection between uh, being in a band and then doing something kind of radically different, like becoming an, ac- yeah, an academic, there's a, there's an interesting connection because a lot of the stuff around, you know, writing lyrics and getting involved in songs, challenging the kind of norm with music, you know, that's really what I discovered was happening in, um, in critical theory, where uh, ideas were being challenged, things that you, you'd thought about in particular ways, were being challenged, and uh, I've really become very attracted to that. So it's like the sort of revolutionary nature of it all, and the sort of you know the, the interesting discourse around you know what's what's considered normal or what's considered contemporary, or whatever. You know, being able to have those sort of com- discussions is the same way as sort of telling your story for your music or making your argument for your music. You'll be using academic papers or articles instead. Yeah, I mean, strangely, I mean, we've kind of gone full circle now. I, I recently uh, did a, a, a few uh, events in the States at a big summer school over there. And I, I went with a, a colleague of mine called Mikey Georgeson, uh, and he's a musician. And we had a fantastic time because we kind of, you know, found ourselves talking about the parallels, as you just did, between music and, and, and critical theory and, um, and really philosophy writ large, actually. Um so, yeah, I, 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 there's, there's definitely a connection between being a musician and, and, and being an academic, for sure. Well, nice. Yeah, it's, it's good that you can when you can have those sort of conversations to kind of just break your boundaries and your horizons and things. Um, and, I mean, you mentioned Foucault earlier. I mean, I don't know if you're going to mention him later on. But I was just wondering, do you mind just kind of unpacking what Foucault talks about? And like, what, what was it in that talk? that kind of gripped you and wanted you to, you to have that conversation going forward and promote it and stuff. Well, okay. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, oh, all right. You, you, you mentioned mean, something, one of the earlier things, you mentioned the word discourse. I yeah. really, the whole uh, of Foucault's project to me is kind of the, the uncovering of discourse, but not in a way in which we would normally kind of think of it in terms of histories and, and subjects. It's more of a kind of a, a discourse of, kind of hidden ideas ways of doing things. But one of the first books I, I got into with Foucault was um, Discipline and Punish, which takes you through the kind of history of, of the way in which power operates on people. And, you know, you have that kind of early idea that power operated through um, subjects being tortured, you know, coerced into doing things. So a lot more sophisticated ways of, of controlling people through, through the prison system, for example. So, you know, Foucault does a lot. He writes about sexuality, uh, we, we're involved quite closely with uh, work which is called media archaeology now, and that borrows somewhat off of Foucault, who uh, wrote a book called you know, uh, "The Archaeology of Knowledge." Quite complex, but um, fascinating. If anyone gets into um, Foucault, it's a good starting point. Yeah, and you're, you're always be glad to have a conversation with them. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 it always surprises me. We 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 tend to get a lot of pressure saying, "Oh, well, students are not interested in that stuff." You know, what they need is a, a, you know, a good career and they need to know more practical stuff. But actually, when you get to st- talk to students about this stuff, as I'm, I'm sure you remember, you know, 
once you get into some sort of unusual ideas, new 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 ways of thinking about things, yeah. um, you know, it's very satisfying and it ad- adds a lot to you as a person all, all through your life, all through your career. Well, I think that was what I found because, you know, when, when you went to union, you know, when I did, I was kind of like, you know, you need to learn some skills to get a job, you know, and, you know, there might be some highbrow thinking alongside it, but that was kind of like a necessary evil. But when you were delivering it, it was kind of in a way that's like, right, this is maybe rethink this, you know, this, here's this practical skill, but then here's all this thinking that goes around it. And here's a bunch of theory that you wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to because you were teaching it in a completely different way to everyone else's teaching it. But it was really valuable at the same time. It's kind of, you know, I, I liked the fact that you kind of expanded the mind of the students and kind of made them engage with material that they wouldn't otherwise have known. That's the whole point of going to university, isn't it? You're not just going there to learn some rote skills to go off and reply in the world. You're going there to have your brain expanded to start being able to discuss things and challenge things and criti- uh, look critically at things. And I think that's what... That's what you left us with. Really. Well, it's, it's good you said that. I mean, I know, well, I know we're going a little bit off topic here, but one, one of the things I've really enjoyed it over years is, is really working with people who, who are there to get practical skills, are there thinking about their careers, because really this stuff isn't as divorced or separate, separated, separate from those things anyway. You know, like this 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 stuff applies to you all the way through your life. Yeah, so, um, yeah. You know. And I'm, glad, think, I'm glad your brain was expanded. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, it was like a peanut when I started. And I, was like a, I don't know, a bigger nut. But anyway, um, going back to the script, I've known you for a while. I still sometimes struggle these terms, even though you did engage me. Um, maybe we could start with some introductions. So do you mind just explaining and unpacking what virality is for us? Yeah, OK. I, it, it's not an easy term. And I've, over the years, particularly with undergraduate students, I've kind of done different kinds of forms of virality. Yeah. Um, so we, we discussed this earlier, virality and contagion theory are kind of synonymous with each other. Um, my main argument, and this is, I'm going to try and put this as, as simply as I can, is that I don't really think that virality, and a lot of people say, oh, how, does, how do you make this spread, or how do you make that spread, or how does this spread? My argument is really that it's, it's a far more complex than that, and there isn't really one kind of single mechanism of virality. So there isn't one kind of, you know, I don't know, catch-all kind of mechanism that, that, that will enable you to spread things. So in the past, when I've had sort of commercial organisations, and I've had quite a few marketeers particularly contact me and say, yeah, well, what is the secret of virality? Well, <laughs> you know, I haven't got that. Um, so, you know, just to go into a little bit more depth maybe with you, I mean, there's a tendency to think of contagion as in something which is kind of like a single mechanism. So you, you're probably familiar with the term memetics. Well... Uh, yeah, the, the word the word meme actually is is kind of derivative from that. Um, but memetics is kind of like a neo-Darwinian kind of idea of, of of things spreading. So it goes back to Richard Dawkins' book from I think 1976, when he made a few kind of loose words about um, well, you know, culture spreads like genes as well. So he said, well, you know, what about the gene and what about the meme? So the meme is like an analogy of the gene. Okay. So. So that's, uh, you know, that's generally the argument put forward in a lot of viral marketing discourses, going back to Foucault. There you go. Um, some other more contemporary stuff, particularly in what we might call psychosocial studies, it's kind of like, you know, mental social stuff, if you like, um, is, is, a, is a focus on uh, how emotions uh, become very important in contagion. And the study of emotional contagion uh, is 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 quite a big big thing. I mean, this this is not just in sort of you know person to person or or group or crowd contagions. 
but also studies of, of online contagion. Uh, Facebook, back in, I think, 2014, did a rather controversial uh, experiment with some people from Cornell University where they, uh, well, where they experimented with trying to trigger emotional contagion with their users. So it was controversial because uh, they didn't let any of these users know that they were doing the tests. Oh, God. So um, a little bit of a clue about social media there. Once you sign on to one of these things, you kind of sign away your rights to any kind of anonymity in these things. Oh. Um, the other, the other uh, area, particularly an area I've been really interested in, and it's kind of digging up the past, you know, a bit, bit through coding in a way again, is looking at uh, old crowd uh, theories. So we go back, one of the probably most famous and often cited books is uh, a book by uh, Gustave Le Bon about the psychology of the crowd, but, but much, much more interesting than that. And someone who went on to influence Foucault, uh, yeah, I'm going to mention his name all the time now, was a, was a French uh, sociologist, one of the first sociologists actually, um, called Gabriel Tard. And Tard's work is amazing. You know, when you read it, now, it, it, aside from some of the kind of typical you know, characteristics of writing at that time, uh, it chimes so well with, with the current day, and it's a lot more complex and interesting, and it doesn't really seem to focus on one kind of mechanism either. Um, I'd recommend that to anybody who's interested in getting involved in virality, contagion theory, and, and, and visiting the work of Gabriel Tard. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so, so kind of to... Um distill that it's kind of a way of uh exploring how ideas um spread through people um you know spread through crowds spread through populations spread through networks is that kind of it so it's it's, it's yeah uh, I, I would um i wouldn't say ideas actually um okay. ideas are just one of the things one of the you know ideas put forward in the study of emotional contagion and what we also call relatedly uh, affective contagion yeah. Is it really? It's not just about ideas. A lot of a lot of it is the way that people feel. You know, feelings are very contagious, and you know the the ideas in a way are kind of secondary to uh, those kind of primary um, transmissions of, of of feeling and affect. Um, that's a whole different subject. We, we we do a conference at UEL called Affect and Social Media, and a typical kind of paper that would be delivered there would be something that argues against ideas being the thing that spreads. And really, that it's it's more to do with affect, feeling, and emotion. So it's, it's Which, um, just just to mention, because you did you did some of this when when we um, when you were at UEL, you know, around affect theory, and there's yeah. a lot of kind of new interesting neuroscience around this. You probably remember Antonio Damasio and all those names we introduced you to. Well, that's that's his idea, really. That you know, reason had previously been kind of considered this kind of rational thing that people had. You know, the thinking human. But uh, he says, you know, that emotions are kind of enmeshed in those those networks of reason. So that's, you know, I wouldn't argue that that, that ideas are the things that necessarily spread through through networks or crowds. So it's it's so it's like because um, McLuhan was another one you mentioned, wasn't it? It's kind of the medium is the message. So the emotion could be the medium, and the message is uh, how this the idea makes you feel, as opposed to the idea itself. You know, you, you the feeling is spread. And then you relate that to an idea just to rationalise what you've just felt or something. It, you know, it could be something along them lines. I'm just kind of, you know, spitballing here because I'm kind of trying to unpack it. But does that sort of make sense? Yeah, yeah. The McLuhan link is a little bit tenuous, but um, yeah. Yeah, I just yeah. thought I'd throw him in there as well. 
Yeah. <laughs> Stuart, I told you not not to list theorists in your essays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Ref, uh, McLuhan et al. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. And so I think you've touched on a few examples. Can you think of anything else that could help illustrate virality? Or is it, were those kind of the ones that you had in mind? Well, you know, there, there are a lot. I mean, we're... we're, we're... <laughs> The current situation, which I know we're going to go on to talk about a little bit more towards the end. Yeah. I'm, I've just written an article um, with a, a colleague of mine called UC Parika, and we're, we've been right. We were asked to write about COVID-19, but of course we're, we're, we're really media theorists of, of sorts. And um, our kind of approach has been to introduce a term which we're going to explore even further uh, called viral loops. And I think we're seeing all over uh, in this this instance, this, this horrible um, you know contagion, examples of, of, of virality, particularly you know this non-mechanistic kind of virality I'm talking about, or that not being reduced to one mechanism, mm-hmm. because as well as the biological virus, we're seeing how financial crisis, you know, panic buying of toilet rolls, spreading of conspiracy about you know communication masks, real nutty stuff. It's all kind of like looped together. And uh, we, we're starting to think about how you might describe that. But, um, you know, if you want an example, just look around you. Just get on social media now. I, uh, you know, some people were telling me that um, some, some of their friends were, were falling for some of really kind of really obvious conspiracy and, uh, and fake news. And I've, I've asked them to start sending me the stuff that, 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 that's being passed around. And, you, you know, you're seeing quite a lot of strange uh, contagions going on which I think, you know, really do um, uh, offer themselves up for the study of, of, of virality. Yes, it's, it's all the stuff beyond just the obvious virus that's out there. It's all of, well, the, mes- all of the messages that's going on. It's all of the behaviours that are happening. It's all of the... Yeah, what, one of our arguments has been, I mean, this is probably another way to put it, is that whereas in the past people have talked about things like viral culture, say in the spreading of, I don't know, you know viral marketing, for example... And they've always said, well, it's, it's a kind of metaphor of the biological virus. Well, we were always very cynical of the idea that it's a metaphor or even you know, an, an analogy at a deeper, deeper kind of level. Because virality isn't just about, you know, it's like a virus. You know, we've now seen that when a biological virus spreads, so all this other stuff loops around it as well. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, a, we, we use the term universal a universal virus. It's a little bit contentious about whether, whether that's the right term, but it means it's kind of all bound together. You know, these things are operating in some kind of logic, which, um, which you know, we need to study and observe. So it's kind of a sociological ecosystem around the actual virus. There's all this other stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. it wouldn't necessarily be caused by the virus itself, or, or certain, certainly the, the, the logic of, of COVID is driving a lot of stuff at the moment. But, um, yeah. you know, it, it could be a financial crisis that equally drives, you know, the, the kind of spread of men, mental health problems, for example. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, you, you wouldn't necessarily link it to one one particular virus, but, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a universal logic, if you like. Yeah, it's dominoes. All the other things, or everything. Yeah, but a crazy, crazy domino set, you know. Yeah. Not not just one domino going on to another. It'd be like you know, multi- multiplicity of dominoes. Oh, bloody hell. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay, and uh, so you mentioned sort of marketeers turning up and asking for you know the magic bullet to sort of make their thing go viral. I mean, yeah. is there anywhere that this these theories can be applied, or have you seen anywhere where it's been been applied, or people have attempted to apply virality? Oh yeah, some some of the some awful books have been written, you know, particularly around the craze of viral marketing, which seems to have died down a lot now. 
But um, they're, they're interesting. They were books which generally kind of draw drew on the neo-Darwinian meme uh, theory, you know, the kind of survival of a fittest. If you want to read a, read a book which kind of explains that in more academic terms, uh, Susan Blackmore's uh, Meme Machine is an interesting uh, uh, point of reference. I think that's as far back as 1999, actually, but it, it shows you how the kind of ideas of Darwin and then uh, more particularly neo-Darwinian stuff around Richard Dawkins and how that can be kind of described as a way to describe how things spread. And a lot of viral marketeers picked on that. Um, I must say, you know, my, my argument is really that this stuff is very complex, very interesting. I've, I've, I've been approached several times. I've got a little anecdote to tell you, maybe a bit later on, I'm not too sure, but... Um, it, oh, no, let's tell you now. I, it, just after, just shortly after I published Virality, I was approached by quite a few, um, kind of, you know, online blogs, tech, tech, like publications and marketing uh, publications to ask, to ask me, you know, what what is the secret? What's the magic magic bullet and all that? And I was always giving them sort of pretty much similar answers. So I've just given you, you know, it's complex, it's difficult, and uh, they they all wanted a straightforward answer. Uh, then the, probably the best one I got was, uh, I can't remember the date exactly now, but this this very uh, early uh, formation of this company, uh, 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 American company, had contacted me, a uh, social media company, and uh, they said they've got some important big American executives coming over. Would I, I like to come and see them? They're really interested in my ideas around virality. And I sort of sent a few emails about saying, yeah, yeah, it sounds, sounds really interesting. I said, yeah, well, are you interested in my theory of virality? I said, yeah, yeah, of course we are. Would you like to meet these executives? Mm-hmm. Uh, this went on for quite a few emails. And I said, well, look, I don't really do business. You know, I, I do predominantly kind of well, I'd describe it then as sociological viruses. And gradually the sort of the, you know, the, 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 the emails died down a little bit. But uh, this, this was Snapchat. Oh, so, wow. uh, yeah, I know. So my, 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 my kids, because I, I told them, I said, oh, I've, I've been in contact with Snapchat recently. I was going to go and meet them, but it sounds like it's gone a bit cold lately because <laughs> I started talking about sociology with them. And they said, how could you have done that, Dad? You know, this is a huge uh, social media company. Uh, yeah, there'd be massive opportunity. Yeah. My, my quick answer to it probably, you know, it is – you know, I'm sure there's some something interesting, especially particularly around emotions. There's a real kind of um, area, I think, of, of commonality between what we do and what people probably are trying to do in business and, uh, you know, in design and persuasion theory and that kind of thing. It's, it, emotions and, and affect play a big, big role in this. And we get quite a lot of uh, interest in our uh, conference, Affect and Social Media at UEL, from businesses and I'm sure they can come and learn something, but my my work actually isn't the application of virality for business. No, it's it's more about understanding it, and it's in the context of society as a whole, and sort of helping yeah. people. Yeah, and and I suppose there is elements of reflecting on things that have gone viral in the past, but it's not necessarily about designing things to go forward. Um, no. and that's that's where someone could perhaps look at your work and try and work out how to apply it, but it may not be applicable. It, yeah, I, I suppose actually, I mean, you yeah. two things there. You, see, you know, business and the objective of kind of earning money from it. Uh, I don't, I, I don't so much object to the latter thing you said, which is about designing. I think I'm quite interested in the way the designers work with the uh, concept of contagion and, and, and virality. Yeah. Uh, as you know, I've, I've worked with designers, you know, at undergraduate level, and and, and also, I, you know, I work quite a lot of artists, um, particularly on ProfDoc, which is you know like the PhD equivalent of a of a uh, you know uh, arts level, fine art, and oh, okay. yeah, it's really interesting the way that they they 
work within this concept. So it's not not as if I'm just sort of my own little kind of thing and I don't want anybody else to share it. It's just I don't really do the business thing. Yeah, it's not that's not your focus or your interest. No. So why are you going to spend time on it, sort of thing? Yeah, but, um, yeah, not necessarily that someone can might be able to take your ideas and apply them, but. They'll have to read a lot of Tard and Foucault and stuff to get there. <laughs> I can yeah. just see him falling asleep like the person with Snapchat did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe if they'd have spoken to you, maybe we'd, have, we'd live in a different world where Snapchat didn't exist. Um, <laughs> or or it would be, <laughs> be even bigger. It's not become contagious. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. Um, and so now that we've got an idea of what reality is, um, let's discuss some of your work in the area. So I think you've, you've kind of mentioned a few things that we've gone along. Um, do you have any other examples of work that you've done around reality? Well, yeah, I, actually, I mean, we, I know we're going to go on to talk about my latest book, of course. That's the only reason I'm doing this talk, Stuart. To hey, hey, it's, it's like a Parkinson, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, <laughs> but uh, aside from plugging my latest book, um, I've actually written a, a trilogy of books. So Virality was the first one. So that's 2012. So that's Virality, Contagion Theory in the Age of Networks. So it's very explicitly about... Um, contagion and that's almost like a kind of literature review in a way of, of Gabriel Tard and some of the other influences that we might draw in to think about how we discuss contagion theory not not in old crowds of the kind of 18th century uh, or sorry 19th century but rather um, you know how we might look at it in a kind of more digital culture online culture. Um, the next book which was, I think, 2016, very late 2016, 2017, was called The Assemblage Brain, uh, Sensemaking in Neuroculture. And that really revisits the Tard thing, because Tard was really interested in uh, the brain, as a lot of philosophers are. You know, um, I'm a big fan of the uh, philosopher called uh, Gilles, Gilles um, but Both of those, Deleuze was very much influenced as well by Tard, we're really interested in a way that brains might communicate between each other, right? Sounds a bit spooky, a bit weird. But um, the Neurocultures book was an idea of looking at contagion theory from a very kind of neuro perspective. And um, I know we're going to speak about my book, which is coming out, which I'm going to plug to you later. But the latest book is really looking at um, social media contagion, very specifically. Um, and, you know, I know it's been written prior to events now, but uh, I think particularly with regard to the kind of spreading of conspiracy, um, the kind of political shenanigans that go on, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's got a lot of relevance to, um, to, to current events. So um, I'm hoping that uh, when it comes out in the summer, we'll be able to discuss it a little bit more, maybe. So it's a good lens to look at the current situation, uh, is your, your current publication. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. this, current, this current situation has probably blown a lot of books out of the water because anything you, know, you might have written prior to this, you know, this, this it's not 9-11 in a way. I mean, probably potentially bigger than that, right? But yeah. as soon as you, you that event happens, anything that kind of happened before it is, you know, pre-9-11, pre-COVID. Um, yeah. So I was a bit worried about that, but there is there is quite a lot of stuff in here which really talks about social media and the you know the the uh, the kind of mechanism, oh, the various mechanisms that work within social media and a way that we interact with social media as as a collective rather than just on an individual level. Um, these kind of dynamics of contagion and uh, they are, I think, relevant and they're um, they're happening as well. Any mention of Joe Wicks on Instagram? Um, doing his uh, <laughs> exercises or Jamie's meals 
Um, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That'll be in the, in the second edition. Um, yeah, there's got to be a second edition, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So, um, as I was saying, so there's there's this trilogy of books, and around there, there's kind of like a, a satellite of um, of journal articles, which which I've written as well. So, yeah, it, it's quite it, it's it's what we call a body of work. Yeah, and what were the outcomes from some of these? Like, um, you know, have you managed to change any people's opinions on things, or influence any government policy, or you know? Just I don't know, or influence other academics or anything like, yeah. What what were the outcomes basically? Well, okay, I you know the outcomes are really in academia, whether you're you're being cited and whether you know it's being mentioned and whether that that subject is is of any relevance. Well, there's quite a lot happening prior to COVID actually. Um, yeah. You know, I, I say we run this effect and social media conference. So I think that's a good example of a way work like mine, but also other people. Um, I work also with um, some colleagues at UEL who uh, do psychosocial studies, uh, particularly Darren Ellis and Ian Tucker. You know, they 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 they've written about sort of contagion in their books, but more more about kind of emotions and uh, affect and online, and yeah. that, that, that 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 that's getting kind of a lot more attention. Um, there are people who come to those conferences because they're interested in the work. I've done and some of my other colleagues have done around this idea of contagion but actually I mean what has been really interesting um, and I've expanded my social media um, friend groups quite a lot during this period of time is there's a lot going on and a lot now going on related to COVID of course yeah so um, you know it's 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 something which was you know there and and interesting but I think it's going to be even bigger potentially in lots of different ways you know artists looking at the kind of contagion, I, you know, contagion is just about things spreading, is it? I mean, we've 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 learnt now firsthand how contagion is also about quarantine. It's about not moving, you know. Yeah, we, we, yeah. we're not we're not spreading very far ourselves, you know. It's a lot about the control of space. Uh, you know, we could get a lot deeper here because this all relates very clearly back to Foucault again. You know, Foucault was interested in a way that uh, epidemics, plagues. Um, kind of, you know, created architectural spaces in which we kind of live in. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's going to change the world of work, and God knows, you know, everything's going to change, isn't it? Oh, well, yeah. How I, people I saw, travel. I saw a really interesting uh, cartoon the other day, because one of the big trends has been, you know, the open plan office, which most most people in academia hate the idea of that, you know, because you're having to share all this space with people, and there's a sort of idea that, you know, they become kind of quite big surveillance spaces. Everyone can see where everybody is, what everybody's doing. But of course, you know, and there's a wonderful image. It was an image of everyone sitting in like a bell-like dome, right? All at the desks, all separated from each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Could drastically change the whole way we've been thinking about doing business, doing doing office work, loads of things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's sort of a conversation for later in the podcast, maybe is how, how it all relates to COVID. I mean, going sure. back to one, one thing you mentioned for your second book, which you said was about the neurology of everything and like, you know, how brains talk to each other. Um, I should have jumped in at that point. But, you know, do you mind expanding on that? Is that, that's not, you're talking about telepathy, are you? You're talking more about sort of um, like that effective angle of uh, communications and virality. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think about the main kind of thesis in that book, which really, I mean, you, you're familiar with the work of Antonio Damasio. So we, we just said earlier, for the for the people who listen to this, that yeah. you know, Damas, Damasio's work is interested in the role of emotions in thinking, really, and, or in reasoning, right? 
another one is Joe Ladeau, right? The emotional kind of brain thesis. So we, there is there has been a what we might call an emotional turn in in, in neuroscience and. I'm not a neuroscientist myself, but I've been interested to see how that particular way of thinking spread out into a whole lot of different disciplines and ways of doing things. In, indeed, you know, marketing, you know about neuromarketing. And I think that's something probably we would have started talking to you about when, when you were there yeah, in 2007. Yeah. So really, that, that, in fact, funny enough, Stuart, I mean, those lectures we used, used to do with, with you, you know, around kind of um, neuromarketing, persuasion, affect, that, that's really what, what ended up in, in this book. Um, the book itself is interesting for me because what it did it, it, what it does, it takes all those kind of theories around neuroscience, but then it, it blends it into some of the debates that were going on in the 19th century and, and particularly around Gabriel Tard. And uh, as I said, this, this interest in the brain. And as the title of a book probably suggests, that it's not interested in just the kind of the one subject brain, right? The kind of, you know, the, 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 the skull with a brain and that's that's the kind of philosophical centre of, 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 of all knowledge. Yeah. It's, it's more interested in the brain being part of an assemblage. So, you know, you might loosely want to talk about thinking brains as being more kind of collective than, than individual. Uh, yes, it's a bunch of cogs working together, but in isolation in order to achieve a common goal. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. wouldn't wouldn't word use, use the word cogs because that's that's cognitive, and we're kind of into yeah. a slightly different paradigm than that. But um, yeah, that's 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 roughly it. Cool. Um, I, mean, I uh, think in cognitive they, they they call it distributed, don't they? Is that the idea of uh, yeah, distributed yeah, cognition? That's it. Cognitive. Yeah, one of my <laughs> it, modules. It's, it's of, similar yeah. to that, but if you if you if you know if you know what that means, then if you read the book, you'll know that I don't agree with that. <laughs> All right, we're not doing distributed cognition. Fair enough. No. Um, cool. So you mentioned some collaborators at UEL. Do you have any collaborators um, you know, earlier on? Do you have any collaborators external to UEL, or just anyone else that you you work with frequently? Yeah, I, you know, in fact, my uh, writing career has been really forged by um, having collaborations with people. I used to write with a, a good old friend of mine called. Jairo Lugo, Venezuelan chap, who um, I don't tend to do much in terms of writing with now. Um, another person I mentioned him earlier is Yussi Parika, who's a professor of um, media technology. I'm not too sure what what, what, what his professorship is in, but he's, he's at, um, he works for Southampton. He's at Winchester School of Art. Um, I did some stuff with him very early on, and we're now revisiting that um Currently, because we were invited, we were invited because of a COVID situation to write an article for a, a French uh, online journal called um, AOC. Um, that was then translated recently uh, for an, uh, another um, publication online called Boundary Two, which is Duke University in the States. So th that, that's been an interesting relationship because that's something we did a long time ago, and we've started revisiting it lately. Um, I mentioned Darren Ellis, who I've worked with at UEL, um, Stephen Madison uh, and Darren and myself uh, co-edited a book called Affect and Social Media, which not surprisingly oh, yeah. relates, relates to the conference. So I think Stephen's was at UEL, but now he's, uh, he's at Brighton. So uh, yeah, yeah, I've, I've always collaborated with people. In fact, you know, getting away from a subject, probably my biggest collaboration at the moment is working with the cultural engine and the uh the kind of community engagement work we do 
Yeah, which is uh, what we mentioned earlier on about engaging with people in the local communities to sure. get yeah, to come yeah, to yeah. university as opposed to sort of external people. Um, yeah, yeah. Great. And um, yeah, I, I mean, it, before we proceed, do, do these collaborators bring a different perspective on your work, or is that kind of you know? Oh, oh yes, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> one of the that's one of the joys of working you know, with other people, of course. Um, oh, great. I've just, we just 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 recently emailed someone I'm working with and said, well, yes, let's work together because it's great to have checks and balances. Because <laughs> you know, if you if you put forward an idea of your own, you can get other people to read it and come back with feedback. But if you're co-writing. The process is so kind of interwoven with your kind of commitments to putting forward an idea, which you're going to have to really you know, say, well, I, I agree with that. So to co-write those things, you know, there's a real, uh, you know, a real process of, uh, of, of checks and balances going on all the time. Yeah, because basically neither of you want to be half committed to an idea that you've half committed to. You know, you, you both have to be 100 percent behind it. So you've got to argue to toss to get to the final idea. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, cool. I mean, you kind of alluded to your other book that we're we're not here to promote. We're here to discuss. But you know, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this it's nine ninety nine from uh, <laughs> oh, from Amazon. Not <laughs> all, all good outlets. Um, but you know, yeah. make sure you order essentials first. Um, but this one, uh, you so this one's being called um, a Sleepwalker's Guide to Social Media. Um, yep. So that's quite a provocative title. Uh, what's this book about? I mean, do you want to expand on that? Okay, well, I could start probably by why is it called a Sleepwalker's Guide um, to social media? The Sleepwalker is a concept which goes back to this person I was describing earlier to you called Gabriel Tard. Uh, it being French, he used the term uh, somnambulist. And for Tard, the social person, that you know, the, the, the social being within these kind of crowds, within these collectives that he was so interested in, were, were like sleepwalkers. And yes, I'm, I'm glad you think it's provocative because in a way, you know, I recently read an article and it said, you know, how the UK sleepwalked into the coronavirus, you know, disaster. Uh, we quite often use the word sleepwalker as a, a kind of, you know, a, a term of impending doom, how we walked into situations that we, we, we didn't have our eyes open in. Yeah. But actually, when you, when you read Tard and, and what I've tried to do with that, is try to think through exactly what it means to be in a kind of sleepwalking uh, mode, if you like, right? To be the somnambulist, and really, what Tard says, it's it's not just so much, you know, that, that these people are sort of collectively stupid. Right? Once they get into a crowd, once they become the sleepwalker, you know, that's that's more of a kind of Le Bon, Gustave Le Bon argument, the psychology of a crowd. That once the individual becomes subsumed into the collective into the crowd they become as stupid as a crowd it's kind of like, like mob mentality like sheep yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Like herding and all those kind of things right so yeah. what, what, what tard is is more interested in the idea that um that the the, the the sort of non-conscious rather i won't use the word unconscious because we're not getting into sort of freudian sort of stuff here but we talk about the unconscious yeah, and, and, and consciousness so that that kind of that you know, small area of kind of alertness of a wake of kind of self-reflection is, 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 is really kind of much more kind of seamless than we think, right? Because it talks about insensible degrees between being non-conscious and being conscious, you know, between automatic habits, things that we just do without thinking, right? And then those things that we think we've got volition, think we've got kind of free, free will, so the sleepwalker in, in Tard's sense, and the way I've been using it, is this sense that we're not 
you know, our, 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 our sleeping selves and our walking selves are not, not separate from each other. All right. So, that, so, you know, so, so, so we, you, you, even though you're conscious, you're unconsciously making decisions. Um, and so are you saying that the sleepwalker's guide isn't actually uh, the sleepwalker isn't a negative thing? This is kind of like um, helping people to wake up to what's happening to them. The, the book itself goes for a whole kind of series of, of arguments around that point, really. Yeah. Um, it does address the idea that potentially we are, you know, stupid collectively. Uh, you know, we've been guided by this kind of non, non-consciousness. <clears throat> we probably need to wake up, yeah. think think a little bit more and become more cognitive. It, it does address that. But ultimately, it, 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 my argument is that the actual, what, 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 the way that people become subjects... That, you know, rather than just being a fixed subject, they're, they're becoming subjects all the time, is through this process of, of, of grappling between really, you know, the, the, the unthought and then those small kind of areas when we, when we, we kind of rationalise about it, right? So, so, you know, get back to contagion. We, 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 we might like to think that we know what causes contagion. However, we're probably involved in it ourselves without even knowing it. You know, we're kind of unconsciously or non-consciously passing things on um, we, we're, we're part of these networks, whether we know it or not, and in a, a lot, lot broader kind of sense than just the individual, the collective. The collective itself is somnambulist, right? Because it's, there's no real kind of, unlike the argument, there's kind of an emergent sort of collective consciousness. Tard argued, that, you know, on the contrary, is a sort of emergence of a collective non-consciousness. So basically, societies all are all sleepwalking. And it's not that there's someone there telling them all what to do. They're just all going off, um, wandering around aimlessly, sleepwalking because they're all un- not un- they're conscious but unconscious. Is this? Yeah, I don't know if it's quite as negative as that. You know, yeah. you, you seem to have sort of fallen into that description of well, we're all wandering around. I mean, maybe yeah. you could sort of uh, is there a way that you could kind of explain it in a, like a sort of give an example or a way to sort of help us picture it perhaps, or one of the examples you might have used in the book to kind of uh, sort of shine a light on it? Well, yeah, okay. I, you know, I look at a, a lot of political campaigns, actually. I mean, one of the um, interesting examples, I suppose, is um, Bolsonaro's campaign in um, in Brazil. I don't know if you're following that at all or, or followed it. Um, so he became president in 2018. And it was a lot of the tactics used by um, what they call the Bolsominions, which is his supporters, to, you know, really essentially use kind of propaganda. But I, I think, you know, that's, that's a bit of an old term, old media term. But they use uh, methods uh, of, of persuasion through um, uh, WhatsApp, which was the predominant um, social media platform in Brazil at the time. Okay. Which, is, which, as you know, is owned by Brazil, uh, owned by Facebook, owned by Brazil, owned, owned by <laughs> Facebook. So, um, you know, I, I look at a lot of the ways in which that operates on what we might call the somnambulist uh, position or uh, disposition. So it, it's not really, you know, I'll get back to this point. It's not really talking about people being stupid in so much as some of the tactics that are used in trying to persuade people operate on this idea that, you know, we, 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 we really don't really know that we're um, kind of non-conscious you know, the non, the non, of course you wouldn't know you're non-conscious. It, it's, it's, it's part of an unthought. But it's immensely influential on, ultimately, the things that you think and you do and, and you know, and in, in this instant, pass on. So being able to kind of tap into, to exploit that non-conscious, 
to um, you know in a, in a in a more kind of popular way to say to kind of to appeal to people on an emotional level rather than a thinking level, right? So, um, yeah, so, so it's basically <clears throat> not that people are unconscious that there's this sort of brain dead zombies walking around. It's just that people can be uh, influenced in a way that they might not be if they were more conscious. Yeah. on a mass level because everyone's at a similar level of non-consciousness because perhaps they're not aware that they're about to be influenced. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so um, what I'm interested in is is scaling up that idea of not just to talk about individuals being that way, but as it becomes collectively non-conscious. Well, like the rise of Trump and stuff like that. It's kind well, of like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we all really seriously thought about that, I mean, how the hell did that happen? How is it happening now? You know, but yeah. this detergent thing is, is hilarious, isn't it? You know, but it happened, and in in a way, that's kind of like a non-conscious aspect of, of America. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, we 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 see them coming out on the, on the streets protesting about you know, being able to get out get out and work. I mean, you you know why they're doing that, but um, it's, there's something very strange about it, isn't there? Yeah, it's and that's the thing. It's kind of uh, once enough people decide to do that, then that becomes the new unconscious. Uh, yeah, it's. It, this horde mentality sort of thing and like how you can influence the horde and get them to do what you want them to do and it is but yeah. you know again i don't want to get into much of the complexity of a book but the yeah. book argues about certain aspects of those previous theories particularly around herding yeah uh, you know which really you know to simplify this maybe a little bit is a lot of ideas around sort of contagion particularly kind of herding and we mentioned distributed cognition those things were really about the way and you mentioned it earlier the way that ideas the way that thinking the way that cognition operates i, th I think what what's changed and what, what what's what my books have been trying to do is, is to try and move on from that paradigm of cognition and think in a new kind of experiential uh you know we in, in neurosciences they call it the emotional turn in in, in philosophy we call it affect theory um so it's a, it's a new kind of paradigm of the thinking about that, those particular things. Yeah, yep. so it's feeling on a mass level. But yeah, we, we'll save that for the, the book. I mean, how long did it take you to write this? Oh, <laughs> funny <laughs> enough, this, this, this was the probably the most rapid of, of, of books I've ever turned around. Um, I think actually to write the, the book in its entirety was probably just over a year. Oh, okay. Which, That's not bad. which is amazing because I've really said that the previous two probably took me around five years what together conception no 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 each oh wow to, 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 to conceive and actually write i mean i'm not, not talking about actually just the write-up yeah this one is a bizarre um set of circumstances but i was invited to write it uh, by by Politi press yeah. and i really wasn't ready to write the third book actually i'd, I'd had some ideas and i was going to write a book i knew what i was going to write it about but i was well away from it and I'd given myself this kind of five-year period to conceive of it. And then they sort of said, well, if you want to write it, you know, do it now. <laughs> so, <laughs> oops, sorry about that. No worries. So, um, you know, um, that, that's, uh, that, that's why I had to do it very quickly. But um, funny enough, you know, I, I was worried all the way through it, and it's been a bit of a, bit of a painful uh, position being having to write a book to order like that. But uh, it's yielded some interesting results that probably those five-year periods didn't. So you know. Yeah, and I suppose it, it must be, must be interesting to, to rapidly get your thoughts out and kind of it, it'll make it much more. Well, I was going to say contemporary, apart from the whole COVID hitting, but it's kind of you know it's kind of much uh, you know rather than it being distilled and kind of you know a, a, through a five-year lens sort of thing, you've had to really get on with 
Yeah, I, there is that all that thing about sort of rapid thinking, isn't there? You know, yeah, quick yeah. thinking, not actually spending much time thinking at all, just doing. Yeah, just getting <laughs> which it is done. Kind of chimes a little bit to the theory I'm talking about, but you know, it was written more non-consciously than it was consciously. <laughs> yeah, it was just a de exercise of putting it on the on the screen. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Cool. And um, so, what, what do you hope people will take away from it? Well, you know, I mean, everything has changed, really, hasn't it? Because of uh, because of COVID, so. You know, I, I was thinking beforehand what people would take away from it. I, you know, one thing I knew that people would say, and it's, you know, you, you, you said it yourself. Well, you know, it's about sleepwalkers. So people instantly think, well, it's a very negative book about, you know, the way that we interact with social media. It isn't necessarily. In fact, around by about chapter four, I've actually got quite an optimistic kind of thesis I'm putting forward. Um, okay. So it's it's not not as uh, as doom laden as, as you imagine. Although my work does tend tend to go down that 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 route. Um, so you know, one thing it's 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 a little bit more optimistic than the, the two previous books. That's for sure. Um, but you know, given c- the current situation, I think you know we've, we we people will need to reflect on some of the more crazy stuff that's gone on in terms of uh, you know online contagion. And the way that we interact with social media, and I'm a bit ambivalent about this because prior to COVID, you know, I've, I've, we were all into this kind of post Cambridge Analytica social media world, yeah. where where we were finally, you know, confronted with the evidence that we'd always feared. You know, people would have said, "Oh, you're conspiracy theorists, you're, you know, you're doom laden media theorists." You know, social media isn't all that bad. I, th- I think I think Cambridge Analytica proved 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 to us that you know we we we, we weren't conspiracy theorists. You know our, our worst nightmares occur right on social on media. Yeah, exactly. Well, now the reason why I'm ambivalent because you know I've, I've been using social media a lot during this period of time. I'm sure a lot of other people have, and you know it's become really really important to people. But I don't think that you know that Cambridge Analytica concerns have gone away. So we're going to enter into a really interesting phase, or you know interesting might not be the right word for it where we're going to be even more reliant on these kind of digital uh, methods of communicating with each other because we can't necessarily get uh, physically close and these machines and these uh, these systems will be operating in the same way these platforms than, than they that, that they were doing you know around Cambridge Analytica so you know issues of not, not just data and data privacy but the way in which these these platforms kind of stir up kind of affective part of, of, of interaction you know not not the, not the cognitive but the, the the affective the emotional the way in which they they they're they're used to really stir up so we then yield or rather give away more of our data and um and then you know become even more part of the platform than we probably would want to be yeah yeah so so you so you're hoping your book is kind of will help people uh, think reflectively before they commit to, or just give me, uh, like media theorists post COVID a lens to look at this, all this, how all this is happening, and how they could, you know, study it and things like that. Well, I think there's probably another study to come yeah, in yeah. terms of post COVID because we we really don't know particularly what's around the corner with that. But um, yeah, it essentially, it is a media theory book, and it's yeah. going to be read by media theorists. Uh, and, and students doing media, and, and you know, but it's not actually. I, I don't particularly like the term media theory actually i mean i'm, I'm i think of myself as a sociologist who yeah, yeah, probably yeah. doesn't really have much of an interest in humans so i know that sounds unusual but um 
you know, it, it, I mean, it's, it's it, it will appeal to lots of different people for different reasons. And there's, there's a chapter in there about marketing. So it looks very much revisits some of the ideas around emotional marketing that I looked at in previous books and updates that. So if you're interested in marketing more more in terms of critiquing it rather than thinking about how you can earn money out of it, um, there's there's probably some interesting stuff there. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, and have you shared it with anyone to review? I mean, what what's the response been so far? Well, yeah, it, it, it goes to review um, before it before it's published. So we've had, I've had some nice comments about it so far. Um, <clears throat> there aren't any proper reviews yet because the book doesn't come out until I think I think. Uh, late June or early July. I'm okay. not too sure if this situation has changed it. It doesn't seem to have made it later, actually. In fact, I've got a feeling it might come out a bit earlier. It's well, certainly re ready to come out because we've, we've done everything. The index, the covers, chosen, it's all there. And it's yeah. up online already. If you go to, <laughs> this is the plug, you go online <laughs> now, you'll, you'll find it. You can make an advance order. So it must be must be quite soon. Yeah, and we'll, we'll share it on the Twitter and things as well, just so if yeah. people are interested, they can find it. Um, Thank, you. So Thank you, Mr. Parkinson. That's all right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, I'm here all week. Um, but yeah. And so we've kind of mentioned COVID a few times. I mean, in, in the last few podcasts I've recorded, I've kind of tried to keep that on the back burner. But, you know, yeah. at, at the time of recording, the world is dealing with the COVID pandemic. As an expert in virality, I thought it'd be interesting to explore how this might apply to your research. So we've got to kind of apply, you know, discussed it. But um, do, you, do you feel your understanding of virality offers you a different perspective on the current situation? Well, a uh, different perspective. I, you know, I, I think everybody's got a different perspective now on everything, haven't they? Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I was thinking, you know, someone someone put a Facebook post up the other day and said, I'm now going through the angry phase. Yeah. Um, I think probably everyone was firstly thinking, oh, this can't be as bad as they think it is. Then maybe the next phase was, this is the most surreal thing I've ever been a, been a part of, you know, particularly anybody who was born outside of World War Two. you know. Yeah. Um, you know, then, then you do know, all these other things. I, I, I suddenly thought, actually, I'm just getting rather complacent. I'm sort of, you know, thinking, oh, this is a new, new normal now. And, you know, it, it, I don't think anybody really has a kind of fixed perspective on, on what it is. Um, with regards to my work, well, of course, you know, we've, we were invited to write these two articles. But UC, by the way, wrote a book called Digital Contagion, which came out before Virality. So, we, we were both invited to, to write this um, these articles for uh, the French and, uh, and then published in the Duke, Duke University uh, website as well. So there is obviously an interest in, in that and you know people are interested in what we've got to say about that. But we're, we're, we're of course learning with the discussions we're having about um, you know this idea of viral loops and, and new spaces of quarantine and you know there's, there's a lot of theory around what we call kind of biopolitics. And this new virus, in a way, has is, is questioned a lot of those assumptions about that. Because originally, the idea of kind of biolo biological, biopolitical, sorry, control was that, you know, things like viruses were used as kind of a way to, to control people, right? But oh, really? one, of the, one of the arguments we put, I mean, all of a sudden, we're now we're stuck in a real epidemic. And it's the virus, the logic of the virus that is kind of, you know, dictating where we're going, what, what, what's happening. You know, they're running, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of research at the moment into simulations, epidemiological simulation software. Right. Because, you know, interestingly, a lot of the decisions that are being made are being based on the reruns of these simulations. You know, what happens if you you, you take away the, this, this centre, you know, you take away the supermarket? What happens if you stop people uh, travelling? What happens if you, you know, make people social distance? These are all being run through simulation machines. 
So it relates very much to my interest in digital culture, digital media. Uh, and really what we're interested in and we're probably going to see is how these simulations, how these models of society as it responds to COVID, you know, not, not some kind of terror or viral that doesn't exist, you know, always the threat there, but never really emerging. Yeah. Finally, the threat has emerged. It is there. And, uh, you know, as a media theorist and someone who's interested in contagion theory, that, that's immense. So um, we, we're really interested. And, uh, you know, I've been chatting with uh, my, my colleague, Yussi, this morning, uh, thinking about how we can approach this idea of simulation in, in, in these present times, you know. So, yeah, because I'm, I'm guessing the simulations are based on the world as it was. And then, you know, introduce the COVID situation, get everyone to stay home. Well, no, 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 no. The simulations are just about the sort of movements of, of crowds. Yeah. Right, so sort of movements, you know, so so you 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 have movements, and then you what you do, you introduce the infection, and yeah. then you introduce the infection in different scenarios, and you, but, you've seen you've seen all this stuff on the TV about getting the curve down. That's it. But my point is, what you know, the simulations are based on how people used to logically behave, which is how people have behaved for the last 30, 40 years. But right. now people aren't going to behave logically anymore. People aren't going to behave in the way you expect. So it's going to be harder and harder to simulate that, won't it? Surely it would kind of. You know, well, it, some some of the interesting stuff I've been reading about is so so what 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 do you do typically is you 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 know see how a population moves around uh, say like a supermarket or um, you know how they how they um, travel from house to house yeah. sort of you know it, intercommunity kind of move, movement. Well, if if you um, ban that, right, you you can stop the spread of a disease. So you know, it's social distancing, lockdown, all that. It's very effective. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, one of the simulations I, I watched, watched this morning was if you just introduce just, you know, something like 10% of the people decide to cheat on that, that can have a massive impact on the, uh, the amount of infections that then, then increase from that point. So, yeah. you know, it, it, these, these simulations are kind of running, running the event, you know, and, and trying to work out what to do next. Uh, you know, it comes back to me a really nice... Um, you know, idea that Nietzsche uh, comes up with about the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the eternal return or the eternal recurrence. And Deleuze talks about it in a sense that, you know, there's the throw of a dice, right? Yeah. So yeah. the simulation is like the throw of a dice and it just rerun after rerun after rerun. So an information loop of what will happen, what will happen, what will happen. Oh, but, 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 the, but Deleuze says, but it's not just about the throw of a dice, it's what dice returns. And, you know, that's the outcome. That's the outcome we're all going to have to live with. We're going to have to live with, you know, what, what the impact of, of, uh, of lockdown will be on the economy, for example. We were talking about that earlier. You know, what were kind of mental uh, repercussions of, of social isolation will be. You know, loads and loads of different things will, will, will spin off from these kind of, you know, roll of a dice. Yeah. And, and we, have to live, we have to live with what they call the kind of affirmation of that. You know the consequences of that, right? And uh, ultimately, I mean, if you read your Nietzsche at all, that means that you know you're going to have to learn to overcome it as well, right? Wow. I mean, I've I've really missed these these uh, conversations, Tony. Um, I, I mean, I, I had a few questions, but I think we've kind of covered a lot of it. Yes. Um, yeah. Also, that's my son on the phone. So. <laughs> oh, right. okay. Yeah. So, um, I think you know, I think you've kind of alluded to what you're working on next. You know, you're going to be looking at this you know, situation as it evolves and sort of dissimulation side of it. So, sure. yeah, I mean, I'm really grateful for your time today. It's been a, a really useful podcast. And I think if people yeah. find it 
interesting and um, hopefully you you know relevant and useful for them as well. Um, yeah, I mean, thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, it was and, great speaking to you, Stuart. Really yeah. nice, really nice, really nice to see you, and, and, and I'm glad you're you're doing well after so many years. And I hope you get through this all right. Yeah, likewise, and um, hopefully we'll we'll get in touch again soon. Yeah. Um, okay. Speak to you again soon, man. Yeah. See you. Cheers. Bye, Stuart. Bye. Bye. Bye.